Let's pray and ask for the Spirit of God to give us illumination as we give our attention now to His Word. Father, we come now in the name of the Son and asking for the grace and the power and the light of Your Holy Spirit. Lord, it's our desire to be able to discern the thoughts and intentions of God Most High. And Your Word tells us that who knows the mind of God except the Spirit of God. So we ask for Your Spirit to give us Your mind as we open together your word, will you submit, cause us to submit ourselves eagerly to what you declare to us, that we will tremble at your threatenings, that we will rejoice in your promises, that we will be comforted in our affliction according to your mercy. We ask this for Christ's sake. We ask this for the good of all of your people. Amen. You may be seated and turn with me to Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2, our text today, will be just the first five verses of the second chapter of Judges. We we encounter a a dramatic scene here in Judges chapter 2. In your mind, think of this, of, of having all of the solemnity, all of the sobriety, all of the seriousness of a courtroom. Because this is what, what's going on here is the Lord himself appears before his people and he files a suit against them. In fact, he doesn't just file a suit. He presents his argument and adjudicates it and finds them guilty. We have language here. It's, it's legal language. God is a covenant-keeping God. He is a covenant-making God. And what we find here is Yahweh restates who he is, what he has done, and the aberrant way, the sinful way that God's people have responded to him. So really, the the text breaks out very very neatly, uh, or not necessarily neatly, but in a a very orderly way, in three ways. Uh, We're going to consider first the covenant maker. Who is this covenant maker? Two, who are these covenant breakers? And thirdly, the hope for reconciliation. Let's read together Judges chapter 2 and take note first first and foremost as, as I read this, the character of the one who makes this covenant, the, the character of the one who appears before his people. Hear the word of God. Then the angel of Yahweh came up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And as for you, you shall cut no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not listened to my voice. What is this that you have done? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become as thorns in your sides and their gods will become a snare to you. So it happened that when the angel of Yahweh spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. So they named that place Bochim, and there they sacrificed to Yahweh. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Before we consider uh, the clear covenant language that's found here at the beginning of of chapter 2, Let's meditate together on on the nature of the covenant maker. The one with whom we have to do. And the first question that arises from the text is found really in the first four words. The angel of Yahweh, or the angel of the Lord. Who is this? Who is this angel of the Lord, or angel of Yahweh? I'm, I'm reading from the the LSB, or the Legacy Standard Bible, and one of the editorial decisions that they made in this relatively new translation is to translate God's covenant name and and to give us his covenant name. So we'll read it as Yahweh. In most of our English Bibles, most of the English translations will have the word Lord, L-O-R-D, in in all caps. And and when you see that in your Bibles, no, that is God's covenant name. That's That's the name Yahweh. God has many names that we find in the Scriptures, but his, the name Yahweh is associated most closely with his covenants. This is the name that he gives to Moses, for example. When Moses, after the, after the 
coming down off the mountain, and God or Moses comes down and finds that the people had built a golden calf. And Aaron said, I, I don't know, we just, this came out of the fire. I don't know what happened. And Moses, in his anger, throws down the tablets and breaks them. And the Lord says, I want you to forge two new tablets. And then Moses is pleading with God. He said, if, if you don't go for us, if you don't go with us, if we don't have your presence, we don't, I don't want to go into the promised land. And Moses asked, can I see your glory? And God hid, you know the story, God hid Moses in a cleft of the rock, and God with his own hand covers Moses' face as he passes by so that, so that Moses could see only the back of God's glory. And as God passes by, he says his own name, I am Yahweh, the God who delights to show mercy. I am Yahweh. That is God's covenant name. So we have this, this here, this angel of Yahweh. Who is this? And there are three possibilities, and, and if you read through commentaries, you'll, you'll see each of these sometimes. The first is that it's a human prophet, that God has appointed a prophet. This is not a, a, a wild speculation. God often appoints prophets to go and speak in his name to his people. Is this just simply a human being that God has appointed to speak for him? Or this word angel literally just means a messenger. So is this a human messenger, or is this an angelic being? Is this a messenger sent from heaven with the word of God to speak to his people? Or is this, here's a fancy word, a theophany, or, which is a, 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 a physical manifestation of God, or particularly a Christophany, which is a picture, an Old Testament picture, an appearance of the second person of the Trinity in human form. I think it's the last one. You know how that is. Preachers give you three choices. It's always the last one. You know that. This is the pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God. Now, this, and it's important for us to take note of this because this isn't the last time this comes up. This phrase, angel of the Lord or angel of Yahweh, comes up more than 20 times in the book of Judges. And he is an important character in the narrative. So I want to try to demonstrate, first of all, why I believe this is God himself, the second person of the Trinity, appearing before them in human form. If you turn over just a couple chapters to chapter 6 of Judges. This is the story of Gideon. We're, we're several weeks away from getting to this story. But I want you to see a couple things here by way of, of, of contrast and, hopefully, illustration. In verse 7, Now it happened when the sons of Israel cried out to Yahweh on account of Midian. So they, this is the cycle of Judges. They had been, uh, they're under the oppression of the Midianites, and it was a deep, horrible oppression. And they cry out to Yahweh on account of Midian, and Yahweh, listen to this, sent a prophet to the sons of Israel. And he said, the prophet said to them, Thus says Yahweh. Notice that's often the language when a prophet appears, doesn't it? This is what Yahweh has said. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. It was I who brought you out of Egypt and brought you out from the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hands of all your oppressors and drove them out before you and gave you their land. So the prophet says, thus says the Lord. But look down at verse 11. Then the angel of Yahweh came and sat under the oak that was in Oprah, which belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite, and his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to preserve it from the Midianites. And the angel of Yahweh appeared to him and said, Yahweh is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, My lord, if Yahweh is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wondrous deeds, which our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not Yahweh bring us from Egypt? But now Yahweh has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. Then Yahweh turned to him and said, Go in this strength of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? But he said to him, O Lord, with what shall I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the least in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's house. But Yahweh said to him, Surely, <clears throat> 
I will be with you, and you shall strike down Midian as one man. You see the difference? The prophet says, thus says the Lord. The angel of the Lord just speaks. But even more to the point, in verses 14 and 16, Yahweh turned and said to him, go in the name of the Lord. Yahweh said to him, surely I will be with you. When the angel of the Lord appears, he says, I. He doesn't say, thus says the Lord. Secondly, notice in, uh, we won't turn over here, but in chapter 13, there's another more extensive account of the angel of the Lord, and this is when he appears to Samson's parents. And you have this whole exchange. First, the wife comes and says, I've seen one, I've seen a man of God who is like the angel of Yahweh. Then they both encounter this. They ask, they, they're, they're still confused about his identity. They ask him to stay and eat. The angel says, I'll stay. Then Manoah, who's the father of Samson, said to the angel of the Lord, this is in verse 17, what is your name? So that when your words come to pass, we may honor you. But the angel of Yahweh said to them, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? Or we might say it is incomprehensible. And of course, later on, the prophets would testify of one who would come whose name is Wonderful, Mighty Counselor, the Prince of Peace. So this mysterious angel, upon receiving the question, what's your name? He says, my name is too wonderful for you. So it seems abundantly clear to me that the identity of the angel of the Lord is in fact the pre-incarnate Son of God. He is the eternal word appearing in the flesh to men. John Gill, in his exposition of this text, says, Why asketh thou thus after my name, seeing it is secret, and not to be known, as his nature and essence as a divine person, which may be meant by his name, is what passes knowledge is infinite and incomprehensible or wonderful which is one of the names of Christ and fitly agrees with him, who is wonderful in his person as God and man, in his incarnation, in his offices and relations, in his love to his people, and in all he is unto them and has done for them. So now as we go back to chapter 2, we need to understand the angel of Yahweh comes and speaks to them. This is none other than God himself. This is, this is no, there's no intermediary. There's no representative sent. God comes before them and speaks directly to them. And look what he says. I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Now that language may sound familiar to you. Because this is exactly how God begins his discourse with the people of God at Sinai. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So the, the narrator of Judges here is clearly drawing our attention to the covenant that God made at Sinai. We call that the Sinaitic covenant or the Mosaic covenant. Those terms are interchangeable. And there, Yahweh delivered to his people the Ten Commandments and the entire language of the Mosaic Covenant. And he begins with, I am Yahweh, and you were in bondage. And don't, don't miss over, don't, don't just gloss over that contrast. And so God again speaks to the people here in Judges, and he, and he puts this contrast before them between God and the creature. I am Yahweh. I am the God who suffers nothing and lacks nothing, and you are in slavery. I am God. I am the one who exists in himself and of himself from all eternity. I need no creature to help me, no creature to comfort me. And you were pitiable and without hope in Egypt. I am the God who is omnipotent and who is able to deliver you by my mighty hand and outstretched arm, and you were weak and helpless and unable to deliver yourself. 
I am Yahweh, the God who is omniscient and merciful. I knew your distress in Egypt even before you cried out to me. I knew the heart of Pharaoh and how he would harden his heart and persist in that hardening. And you didn't know enough even to deliver yourself. I am the Lord who sovereignly governs all things. I am the God who led your father Jacob into Egypt. I am the one who orchestrated all the events to put Joseph, the long-lost son, in charge of everything in Egypt so that I could provide for you. There was a famine in the land, and you had no hope. You were, you were just as soon as dead in your hunger. And you, you are my people because I forged you as a nation. I have made you my people. I am Yahweh in whom there is no change. My, I can say my covenant promises are sure because there is no change in me. There is no variation in me. Nothing acts upon me from outside, and yet you, you are confused and drifting and change according to whatever neighbor happens to be speaking to you at the moment. So this introduction is, is, is powerfully important for us to grasp. This is what the, the author of Judges is wanting to put before us, is what God himself wants to put before us, is the contrast between God and man. Between the creator, between the covenant maker and the creature. I've often said this, you've heard this, that, that we, can, we can say biblically in, in, in many ways, in qualified ways, that, that man is like God. We are made as image bearers of God. We are reasonable creatures after the image of God. And if you are in Christ You now have the nature of Christ imputed to you. You are growing progressively, being conformed to his image. So in those ways, we can say that man is like God, but we must never, ever, ever, ever say that God is like man. I am the Lord who has brought you out of Egypt. And so when chapter 2 of Judges begins this way, it is a strong and clear statement by God about God himself. God begins with a statement about himself, not about man. Isn't that the pattern that we see over and over and over again in the scriptures? And what is our tendency? We begin with us, what I need, what I want. And God always begins with his own perfection, his own immutable nature, his own mercy, his own perfection. And we should note this pattern, both in the Old and the New Testament. In every circumstance, in every event in, the, event in the whole Bible, if God did not act first in kindness and mercy toward man, men would have no hope. So it's important, before we even dive into the rest of the narrative of Judges, we, we begin with that firmly fixed in our mind, who God is. Because Otherwise, we're, we might be tempted to think, is God overreacting? I mean, come on, they, they got 80% obedience on their test. Isn't that enough? They, they were mostly good with just a little bit of bad, at, at least at first. So isn't that good enough? Is God being overly critical? See, if we don't have it firmly fixed in our mind who God is in all of his holiness, we will be tempted to give man the benefit of the doubt, won't we? Now think about this. What causes, when Yahweh says, I've made a covenant with you, what causes this necessity of covenant? What causes the separation between God and man? Here God has made this distinction. I am Yahweh, you were in Egypt. What causes this gulf? And, and, and our, the temptation is to think, well, it's, it's sin. You know, man has sinned, rebelled against God, and now we have this chasm. Now we have this rift between God and man. And and there is truth into that, but it is not only the sinful deeds of man that has caused the separation with him, with God. It is also the sin nature of man. Even before birth, 
A man is dead in his sins. And as a consequence of that, he is in, at enmity with God. He is separated from God. But that's not the first cause of that separation. That's not the first cause of the gap between God and man. You know what the first cause is? We're creatures. God is uncreated. God is holy and immense. We are finite. We are changeable constantly. It was not only their sinful deeds, it was not only their sinful nature, but their creatureliness that separated them from God. In our our confession of faith, in chapter 7, which is description of the covenant that God has made, description of this progressive revelation of covenants, it begins with this statement, the distance between God and the creature is so great. Now this is in a state of innocency. This was before Adam and Eve sinned. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do obedience, do owe obedience to him as their creator, yet they could never have attained the reward of life, listen to this phrase, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. According to his infinite kindness and mercy, God condescended to the people of Israel. He was under no obligation to do that. They had no right to receive that from Yahweh. He he would have been utterly, perfectly just to leave them in Egypt in the bondage of slavery. Except, except he had made a promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob that he would not leave them. According to his kindness, according to his mercy, according to his covenant faithfulness. And now, it is Yahweh who stands before his people and reminds them of who he is. And we too need to take the time to remind ourselves. This is the God about whom we are reading. This is the God with whom we have to do. This is the God the writer of Hebrews would, want, would later say, No creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. I am Yahweh. I am the one who brought you out of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. That's the covenant maker, saints. This is is our God. So we see in the very first place that he is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. And and God's covenant promises are the absolutely only basis for any relationship that man can have with God. There is no other basis to have a relationship with God. So if any of you or any of your co-workers or your neighbors or your friends say, well, I have this relationship with God. On what basis? Because if it's not through God's covenant dealing with you, you have no relationship other than judgment with God. But now, let's consider how did his chosen people respond to this covenant faithfulness? Here, Here is Yahweh himself, the second person of the Trinity, appearing before the people of God. How do they respond? Let's briefly remember some important demands that God had placed on his people. Through the lips of Moses, first recorded in Exodus, and then re-preached, Moses is preaching this covenant in Deuteronomy. And he brings them in, and this whole section begins, this section of Judges 2 begins with, I brought you out of Egypt, and as for you, here's your responsibility in this covenant. I'm a covenant-keeping God. I will never break my covenant. What was your job? What was your responsibility? Well, he gives two statements, but these statements we need to understand as a summary. These two two commands, these two covenant provisions, represent a, a multitude of responsibilities that the people of Israel had. As for you, you shall cut no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. In other words, you shouldn't enter into any agreements with them. And you shall tear down their altars. That was their duty. So as as the judge, jury, prosecutor, and executioner stands before them, 
And he says, I kept my covenant. I brought you out of Egypt. I've brought you into the land. I've gone before you. Your job was not to make any alliances, any agreements, any covenants with the people of the land. Further, your job was to tear down all the vestiges of their pagan worship. This is not a new command. The terms of the covenant that God had already commanded his people said exactly this. If you want to turn over with me, turn back to Exodus. Exodus chapter 23. Exodus chapter 23. <clears throat> Begin with verse 20. Listen to what the Lord says. Behold, I am going to send an angel before you to keep you along the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Keep watch of yourself before him and listen to his voice. Do not be rebellious toward him, for he will not pardon your transgression, since my name is in him. But if you truly listen to his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the, Hitt the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I will annihilate them. You shall not worship their gods. You shall not serve them. You shall not do, you shall do, not do according to their deeds, but you shall utterly pull them down and shatter their sacred pillars and pieces. So here, here's the clear command. You're to tear down all their altars, shatter their, their, their idols. But you shall serve Yahweh your God, verse 25, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will remove sickness from your midst. There shall be no one miscarrying or barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion all the people among whom you come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you, and I will send hornets ahead of you, so that they will drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites before you. I will not drive them out before you in a single year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. I will drive them out before you little by little until you become fruitful and take the land as an inheritance. And I will set your boundary from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the river. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you will drive them out before you. You shall cut no covenant with them or with their gods." They shall not live in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So God is saying, I go back to Judges 2, I am a covenant-keeping God. Is this not exactly what I told you would happen? I told you to tear down their altars. I told you to make no agreements with them, because this is exactly what was going to happen. I am God, and you are man. I know you. And they didn't listen. They didn't hear. And these commands are, are explicitly repeated. This isn't just a one-shot a one thing, and maybe the people forgot. In a number of Moses' sermons recorded in Deuteronomy, particularly in, in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and 12, you can go read that on your own, these commands are, are repeated. And now, the angel of the Lord, who has promised to lead them and to deliver them, God himself stands before his people and declares them guilty of breaking covenant with him. After all he had done for them, he says, you haven't obeyed my voice. You haven't listened to me. In fact, look what he says. Look what God says there at the end of chapter, or verse 2. You have not listened to my voice. What is this you have done? Does that, does that phrase sound familiar? It's precisely the question, word for word, that God asked Eve. What is this that you have done? I've given you everything. Most of all, I've given you me. And you decided it wasn't enough. You decided you were wiser than me. What is this that you have done? Now, think about that. Is there any way that man can answer that question from God? Is there any good way? 
what is this that you have done? Now, as parents, surely we've asked this kind of question, or at least a paraphrase of this question, right? You've come in, and your son is, and you go, so what, is you, what, have, what have you done? To your daughter, what, what is this that you've done? And we may be confused or consternated or, or agitated by their, their actions. But again, we're creatures. It's a, it's a creature-to-creature offense at best. And here, the holy, holy, holy God looks to his creatures, looks to those to whom he has given everything, and says, what have you done? See, sin is, is at its root. It's insanity, isn't it? I mean, who in their right mind commits sin against the holy God? Well, and the answer is, you know, none of us are in our right minds because we still sin against God. We have a promise that one day we will be glorified and, and utterly, thoroughly renewed. But it is, a fe- it is a feature of our fallenness that we rebel against God, the one who sustains us, the one who gives us the breath that we have to curse him, the one who, get, who, who animates the hands that we use to sin against him. What is this that you have done? And the same sinful rebellion is now on display once again. And in verse 3, God reminds them that there were both natural and covenantal consequences of their rebellion. So in, in, in verse 3, which says, Therefore I also said, this is not a, okay, since you did that, now I'm going to change the terms and here's the punishment. This is, these are direct quotations from what God said was going to happen. Therefore, I also said, at the same time, we saw this in Genesis chapter 23. I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become as thorns in your sides, and their gods will become a snare to you. God said, this is exactly what I told you would happen. If you did not tear down their altars, if you did not get rid of even the temptation to worship their gods, you would. In fact, you'll be ensnared. You'll be trapped in this. Your side will be pierced. It's an, it's an image, it's a, it's a vivid image, like a bird being caught in a net, in a snare. You'll be caught that way. I mentioned last time, and it's worthy of repeating, Mark Dever said, people naturally respond to God's blessings with sin. That's a byproduct of our sinful nature. We're often tempted to think, though, that if we just had maybe more from God, we would sin less. That if God were giving us, had given us something that we think we're, we're missing, that maybe we wouldn't face the kinds of temptations that we're facing now. So you see, while the people of God were in Egypt... Didn't they face all kinds of temptations under the harsh Egyptian taskmasters? And surely, once God delivered them, they wouldn't face the same kinds of sins and temptations anymore, right? Well, come to find out, they still did. But maybe we can excuse them. He delivered them, but then they're in the wilderness. And that comes with its own set of challenges and hardships and difficulties. And as a consequence of those hardships and difficulties, they were tempted to sin against God. But now... God has led them into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Surely now, you see how the pattern goes, right? See, sometimes we're tempted to think that a change of scenery will cure the problem. That if our circumstances change, that our sin problem will will change. Once they actually enter the promised land, though, then... Do they get right with God? Do they cease their sinning against God? No. A change of scenery is not sufficient motivation, it's not sufficient power to make men righteous. And and this is true with us as well, isn't it? Have you ever thought that if you could only change your circumstances, then maybe you wouldn't sin against God the way that you do? I mean, what, what man or woman who has been anxious about Safety or security or, or money finds that when those material things are no longer lacking, the fear and anxiety hasn't gone away. In fact, maybe it's increased. I mean, what single man or woman who has thought that marriage 
would cure their lust problem. And they find on the other side of their vows that the temptations remain. What mom or dad thinks that their anger problem is on account of their children? And once those kids are older, then they won't have those problems anymore. You see, we tend to think that our sin is a consequence of where we happen to be sitting right now. That our sin happens to be a product of our circumstances. But that isn't the case, is it? Where does the sin come from? It comes from within. It was their own covetous hearts that drove them. It was their own idolatrous hearts that led them to sin against Yahweh. God says, what have you done? And the only remedy was for them, and it is to us, to hear God's voice and to follow him. To believe his promises are true, that he is truly a merciful God, ready and eager to save. See, we we can't be educated enough to reform ourselves. We, we We can't have enough outward constraints placed upon us to prevent sin. Covenant breakers that we are, we will always return to our sin if left to our own. That's a fact of humanity. That's even a fact of redeemed humanity. If we are left to our own, we will sin against God. No outward reformation will ever satisfy the demands of God's holiness. What do we need? We need an inward change. We need an inward new creation wrought by the supernatural work of the Spirit of God. But even though we, who are like Israel, are by our predisposition, by our nature, covenant breakers, we have a covenant maker in whom we have a hope of redemption, a hope of reconciliation. In God alone, we have this this promise for us to be restored. And that's what we see in in the last two verses. So it happened. Then when the angel of Yahweh spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. So they named that place Bochim. And there they sacrificed to Yahweh. The people hear hear the voice of, of their God. They hear him declare to them their guilt and the consequences of their guilt. And they weep before Yahweh. They worship him. They offer sacrifices to him. And you may be thinking the same thing that I've thought as I study this. Is this genuine repentance? I mean, they, they, they weep. They worship. They offer a sacrifice. Is this genuine repentance? They even gave their place of worship. This is probably Bethel. They gave their place a new nickname, Bokim, which means place of weeping. Is this repentance? Years later, as God was still dealing with this same stiff-necked and stubborn people, he spoke to them through the prophet Joel. Listen to what he said. Joel 2, yet even now, declares Yahweh, return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and tear your heart and not your garments. Now return to Yahweh your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and kindness, and relenting concerning evil. Notice what the Lord says through Joel. There's a difference between an outward repentance and a true inward work. Don't rend your garments. Don't just rip your garments. And that was a cultural expression of grief. You know, sackcloth, ashes, but they would tear their garments. I'm not interested in a show. I'm interested in your heart being broken before me. I'm interested in your heart turning towards me. But notice that that turning has a specific object. Now return to Yahweh your God for or because... He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting concerning evil. So is this genuine repentance in chapter 2 of Judges? Yes and no. Here's my conviction on the matter. You, you may, maybe I can carry your conscience on this. Because God has always preserved a remnant, I believe there were some who trusted in the promises of Yahweh, whose sacrifices were genuine, 
whose praise was genuine, whose hearts were genuinely broken before the Lord. From our vantage point, as it were, looking through this window and watching two different men approach the altar with their sacrifice, we can't tell which is which. But God knows. God knows with certainty. God knows with clarity. But see, there's a difference here. There there were those on this day, surely, who said, oh, man, our enemies are still going to be here. We are in for a hardship. The consequences of our sin is going to be severe. I'm going to try to talk God out of this, and I'm going to go and worship him. I'm going to weep before him. I'm going to put my sacrifice on on the altar, and maybe, maybe, just maybe, I can compel God to be merciful to me. There was another man next to him, though, who was like the Levite that Jesus described in the sanctuary, who beat his breast, who wouldn't even dare to look to heaven. He said, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. I believe that you are compassionate. I believe that you are gracious. I believe that you are slow to anger. And that's all I've got. My sacrifice is an expression that I believe that but I know the sacrifice doesn't change anything. Doesn't change anything in me. Doesn't change anything in God. Because I know nothing needs to change in God. He is merciful. He is compassionate. He is slow to anger. And he forgives. That's what I believe. And that's where I stand. See, two different men From 50 yards away, you can't tell the difference, can you? Neither can I. It's the same as true this very moment. There are those who may weep outwardly, who who will say, if I could just do this particular sacrifice, and maybe you're not going to slip the throat of an animal and bring it to church, but you're going to double down the Bible reading. I'm going to make these, I'm going to repurpose to do these things, and and by by that, maybe... God will be persuaded to show me mercy. Or the other one who says, I have no hope, I have no plea, I have no argument, except Christ's blood is enough. He is more than sufficient to pay for all of my sins. He is more than enough to satisfy every debt I have accrued or could accrue. More than enough. See, in the New Testament, Paul strikes this same note in 2 Corinthians 7. He says, as it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved unto repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Daniel Block, commenting on this passage in in Judges, says, they seem to acknowledge that they have fallen short of the covenant obligation and declare their devotion to Yahweh by cultic actions. Cultic action is not a bad word. It just means they they obeyed God's commands. They, they, They did the sacrifice. But the reader will be disappointed to learn that this will be the very last time in the book they respond this way. Subsequent events will prove how short lived this revival was. It was an outward show. Again, I'm persuaded there were genuine believers there. God always preserves a remnant for his own glory. But clearly, the change of scenery had not fixed the sin problem. The people of God needed a new covenant. Now this old covenant, the Sinaitic covenant, pointed to a new one. But it was still a covenant of works. It was still a covenant that says, do this and live. If you don't do this, These are the consequences. And the only basis for their repentance is is God's unchanging nature and his covenant promises one day to raise up a redeemer who will do what? Who actually pardon their sin. Who actually cleanse them from unrighteousness. Who will do a work from the inside out, not from the outside in. We have nothing else. Nothing else on which we can, we can rest. And it seems as if the people of God 
in, in Judges 2 could somehow impress God by their sorrow. They thought repentance was a matter of sufficient grieving, sufficient sacrifices, sufficient sorrow. And if you, once you're, it's almost like those fundraisers where you have the thermometer or something and the, and the thing goes up. And that if you just get enough intensity in your repentance, then God will forgive. If you, if you can fill up a big enough bucket with your tears, that somehow God will be impressed with that, and he will forgive. We were talking about this in Sunday school just this morning, that when we confuse cause and effect, we begin to think that the, our faith and repentance is the cause of our, of our being forgiven by God. No, it's God's grace alone. It is the merits of Christ alone. Those are the instruments. Those are the empty hands by which we receive this blessing of God. It's not a merit, but how easily we can turn this into a merit that deserves God's mercy. We just repent hard enough. Jeremiah chapter 31 spoke of this new covenant, this new covenant that would come. God had told them all along, what you need, what you really need, is not that outward mark, not the circumcision of your body. That's not what's going to save you. What you really need is the circumcision of your heart. And Jeremiah, in, verse, in chapter 31, prophesies in this way. He says, Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will cut a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I cut with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. But I was a husband to them, declares Yahweh. See, because there's a new covenant coming, not like that one. That one was a covenant of works. That was a covenant that says you, you, you have to keep the conditions of this or you break it. Jeremiah goes on, but this is the covenant which I will cut with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them. And on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach again. Or they will not teach again, each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know Yahweh, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares Yahweh, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. Saints, that's what they needed, and that's what you and I need. We don't need another, another covenant of works by which we are convinced or persuaded wrongly that we can earn our way to God's favor, even by our acts of contrition or penance or repentance. They needed what they could only gain by believing in the promised Messiah who would come. They needed to learn to rest in the unmerited grace of God alone. They thought repentance could be a work that would save them. That by repenting enough, they could bring themselves back into the favor of God. They thought, since God commanded their repentance, he commanded their turning away from sin, that that repentance would be the cause of them being transformed, not the fruit of it. We're going to see this over and over again, that that outward change just doesn't suffice, does it? In fact, we're going to see the fruit throughout the book of Judges where the spiral of depravity just goes deeper and deeper and deeper. Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9 tells us, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It doesn't say by faith you've been saved. It's by grace you've been saved, through the instrument of faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Saints, faith and repentance are are two sides of the same coin. They are both instruments by which God saves us. They are not the ground of our justification. What is the ground of your justification? It's the finished work of Christ. If, if you are in him, then all of his perfect obedience to the law, every jot and tittle, has been imputed, been credited to your account. And all of your sin has been washed away. All of the debt, Colossians, 
Paul says the certificate of debt was nailed to the cross. It's all been canceled. That's the ground of your justification. That's the ground of your standing with God. Not, not the quantity or the intensity of your faith. Not the quantity or the intensity or the measure of your repentance. But Christ. Christ and Him crucified. Have you come to Him and taken hold of His promises? Have you come to Him and said, I've got nothing except these empty hands of faith and repentance to take hold of the blessings that you give to me in Christ. Your salvation will never be found in looking and analyzing your own covenant breaking. Your salvation is found in the covenant maker. It's found in the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I are all covenant breakers. That's the reality of where we stand. This is a universal human condition. But you stand before a holy and faithful covenant maker. He stands before you today. He stands before me and says, I'm Yahweh. I'm the one who's delivered you. I'm the one who, by my grace alone, has brought you out of the land of slavery, a land of your own sin. I've, I've broken those bonds. I've broken those chains. I've delivered you. I've taken the one who is an enemy and I've made him a friend. Will you believe that? Will you stand there and rest there for your own good and for my glory? Will you believe that? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we are grateful that the God with whom we have to do delights to show mercy to humble sinners. Lord Jesus, by your Spirit's power, will you grant to us the grace to believe that you are both the author and the perfecter of our faith? Will you help us to trust that you who have begun the good work in us will actually bring it to completion? Father, will you help us by your Spirit's work to cling to the promises of Christ, to cling to him, and to forsake all of our hope in our external reformation of our moral change. We pray that, that we would seek to walk in holiness before you, that we would, would seek out those good works which you have ordained before the foundations of the earth were laid, but that we would do that as, as a fruit as a consequence of the inward change that you've done. We ask this for Christ's sake, and we ask this for the, the good and the welfare and the unity of all of your people, and we ask this for the sake of the fame of the name of our Savior as, as we testify to him wherever you give us opportunity. Amen.